The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and 1077 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And lots going on in technology as always. Congress now wants to tax cryptocurrency. I heard and they're about getting this. in the weeds as to try to figure out how all this crypto works. I'll talk about that. I, I think uh, Congress may muck something up as they try to do that. Well, they usually uh, do. They usually do. And there's, there's a new approach to AI, thinking in analogies. But the researchers who are proposing this new method say that the robot needs a body so he can understand the analogies of walking around in a body. So the question is, do robots really need bodies or can they be robotic just as processors? This sounds totally geeky. It, it, but it's, it's an interesting uh, thought. It is a little geeky, Jim, but I can't help it. No, no, and, no, you can't. <laughs> and we're going to go the trivia of the week. The first ransomware was written by a PhD biologist <laughs> uh, back uh, in 1989. I'll talk about that, a little bit of the history of ransomware. Uh, this week we're going to feature Charles Cow. He's the father of fiber optics. It's an interesting story about how fiber optics finally became practical. And of course, it is a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Andrew in Bethesda. Dear Tech Talk, I want to advance in my IT career. I'm currently working at the help desk, but would like to do more. What do you suggest? Love Tech Talk. Thanks, Andrew from Bethesda. Is that help desk in quotes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, he, he could really be helping. I mean, help desks do have a, a bad reputation, but I know, he I'm, could be helping. I, I'm sure. I'm sure. If he's listening to us, he's very helpful. Well, Andrew, I'll tell you what you have to do is you've got to work on some projects, and you, you sort of have to anticipate where the field is going, so you prepare yourself for the uh, for the future. And uh, and here are a few suggestions. We know that the world is moving toward virtualization. Everything is virtualized. So you may want to set up a virtual operating system, say using VMware on your computer. Uh, learn something about virtualization because everything is being virtualized as we put software layers on top of the hardware. And cloud computing, learn how to set up a cloud computing account. You can get accounts at uh, at Amazon, at Microsoft. You can set them up. 
uh, and they're not very expensive to set up and just learn how to use it. And in fact, people are using virtualization and cloud computing to, to move to move entire data, data centers from one location to another that's uh, done with Kubernetes, where they basically have cloud computing containers. Uh, the, uh, you might want to, if you're interested in uh, security, you might want to get a, uh, a certificate from SANS, S-A-N-S. That's the gold standard in security training. Uh, they have a lot of people that are actually network administrators who, who, who teach the class because of their practical experience in protecting their systems. It's a great, great system. Open source software is really on the rise. So you might install a Linux operating system at home, play around with it, learn Linux. Uh, you might install the Apache web server on that. You could download MySQL. Uh, which is an open source uh, uh, database, uh, and uh, and then you could uh, you know and you could actually maybe even make a database driven website using that. I mean the key is you have to actually do something in order to be useful to an employer. Uh, database management is a really really big thing. It's uh, you can get student packets from Oracle and you can install crippled versions of all the Oracle tool, tools, and you can you can set up Oracle systems at home uh, quite nicely. You might want to look at programming languages if you want to get into, uh, uh, you know, one of the most popular programming languages now, especially for data analytics, is Python. But uh, you could you could learn Visual Basics if you want to if you want to start out with something really simple. Uh, uh, C is always a great, uh, you know, a great programming language for speed, but Python is probably, I'd say if, as a first language is probably the best because it's, it has, it's used by so many people. It's very good for applications and you can, you can basically program in it very, uh, very quickly. And uh, you might want to look at, if you're interested in internet working, you might you, Cisco has simulators that that allow you to configure devices without any hardware. So you could you could go to get to some of these virtual simulators. So there are a lot of things you could do. Now, your employer may actually pay for certification classes for you. So you might inquire about that because it turns out that if they're on a contract where they can bill you out, if you have more certifications, they can bill you out at a higher pay rate. And so they make more money on you. So they may pay for certification classes. Uh, but the most important thing is set up your own IT lab at home and do something. Do something that you're interested in and uh, show initiative. Uh, show that you can learn things that you don't know anything about or you're not afraid just to jump into it. Now, uh, you might want to sub subscribe to some of the industry magazines. I call them industry rags because they'll, all, they'll tell you where the field is going, what CIOs are looking for. It's a great way to sort of uh, keep an eye on where things are moving. And now that COVID is over, you could join user groups. User groups, uh, uh, you know, it could be in any of these areas, Linux, Oracle, MySQL, any of these areas have users groups that meet periodically, and these are professionals in the field. You could go to those users groups, and they'll help you with your projects. And, by the way, 
you may snag a job while you're there if you if you impress them with the projects you're working on. So there's a lot of things you can do. Uh, just keep moving and keep working on projects because that's what people want to see. We got an email from Jeff in Arlington. Dear Tech Doc, I'd like to erase and clear everything on my hard drive and clean it up so I can donate my computer. What do you recommend? I got a Windows machine, Windows 10 actually, Jeff in Arlington. Well, Jeff, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you don't have nuclear secrets on your uh, hard drive, you could, you could simply reformat the hard drive. Now, don't do a quick format. Do a full format because that writes over everything when you reformat it. The quick format does not write over the whole drive, and uh, data in files is still there. It just basically changes the uh, changes the name on the file, but the but the actual data is still there, and people could use a recovery tool to get it. So you could do a um, you could do a full format, and and if you don't have nuclear secrets, that's probably uh, probably good enough. <laughs> now nuclear secrets. If however you've been working on a nuclear secrets, you may want to use DBAN, which is Derek's boot and nuke. <laughs> Derek's boot and nuke. I mean, I love DBAN. So you can download DBAN, copy, you know, download it to a CD. They'll, they'll, they'll have a file there, an ISO file that you, can, that, you can, that you can just put on the CD. It will boot up on the CD, and then it goes in there, and it basically writes and rewrites and writes and rewrites uh, on your hard drive so that there's no residual magnetism that can be picked up. And DBAN is really useful for very, very high security uh, scrubbing. And it's free. You can just go to dban.org to get it. Then when you are finished, you can reinstall Windows. You can download the installation uh, files from Microsoft now the nice thing is, since you've got Windows 10, you don't need a, uh, a a key. You don't need a software key because the Windows installation is tied to your hardware configuration. And since you have the same hardware configuration, that Windows will automatically install on that machine because your hardware is registered with Microsoft. They made it really easy to do that. Uh, and then, if you want to be really nice, you could actually do all the security updates after you've installed Windows, so you give them really a super good machine. Uh, we got an email from Jim in Bowie. Dear Tech Talk, I want to explore a, a few of my new interests. Uh, you know, I'm interested in web design and photography, and I need some advice. I'm planning to uh, to make a blog about uh, about my uh, about my photography and how I do it. Now. Uh, how, how does one register a URL? Does it cost anything? How do you start a blog? Thanks, Jim and Bowie. Well, Jim, uh, you, you can get a domain name for about 35 bucks a year or less. Uh, you know, you, one of the easiest ones is just go to godaddy.com. That's one of the cheapest. A year? You have, to huh? keep, you have to register it every year? Yeah. It's, okay. it's an annual, annual. Or you could get, I mean, you could get like a, a 10-year registration, you pay more, or a five-year registration. You can get a multi-year registration. but <laughs> 10 years is a long time in IT. It is. So <laughs> you, you can get a multi-year registration, uh, but if you get the, 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 the default registration, it's for one year, and then they remind you after one year's up and you, you pay another fee. 
but it it depends on the register. But they're about thirty five dollars a year, and you can you can get your you can look up your uh, you know you <clears throat> you can do a search to see what domain names are available, and you can get them. And you'd you'd want to get the the .com. They'll try to sell you the .net and the .org. You could you could buy all three. Whenever I get a domain name, I get all three, so somebody doesn't try to you know steal my customers by taking the same domain name and just putting in .net. Mm-hmm. So if you get all three, then it's going to be well three times thirty five. So now you're looking at a hundred bucks. Yeah, you're looking at a hundred bucks. Now, as far as the blog goes. <clears throat> If you've got your own domain name, okay, if you get your domain name from GoDaddy, GoDaddy will host the website. Uh, GoDaddy, um, you know, uh, will will do that. And then you can basically download WordPress, <clears throat> which is uh, free blogging software. You can download it. It's free. Now, they have various add-ons or extensions to WordPress that you pay for. That's where they make their money. Like if you want to back up your WordPress automatically, there's a backup module that costs you money. But the basic WordPress is free, so you can set up WordPress, you can set up your blog. It's used by a lot of folks. You could uh, <clears throat> you could have somebody help you with that. You could one of these uh, these 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 websites where people were, you know will sell their services on a on a per job basis. And um, and you can get people to help you with WordPress. It's really easy. Now, if you don't want to do the whole domain name thing, and you don't want to do the whole <clears throat> WordPress thing, you can you can basically go to Blogspot, Blogspot.com. Uh, now you don't own the domain, but it could be like Jim's Blog dot Blogspot.com, and you could set up a blog. A lot of people just use Blogspot. That's free, and. Uh, and they also have ways to make money by, by doing add-ons. But and so you could actually go to Blogspot. You could set it up right away, see how you like it, and then, at a secondary thing, I think you'd ultimately want to own your own blog because then you own your customers and you 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 can drive traffic to it. Then you can set up your uh, your domain name and get WordPress going. And I think you'll have a lot of fun with that. And maybe you'll sell some of your photographs. Uh, by the way, there are marketplaces for photographs on the web where you, where, uh, that are, that are pretty effective. If you're, if you're interested in selling photographs, we got an email from Cameron. I'm a student at Northern Virginia community college, uh, in the Woodbridge campus. And I'd like to know about transferring to your university. Do you accept courses already taken at different universities as the way I can send transcripts so I can find out how many courses will be accepted. Thank you. Cameron. Well, Cameron, we have a lot of students that transfer from the community college because our schedules are so convenient. We're day, evening, and weekend, and our schedules really match your, you know, your working schedule. So you can go here, and then we we also have an accelerated program where you can get a bachelor's degree in two and a half years instead of four years because we just go year round. So we get a lot of students transfer to the community college because of our placement services and other things. So yeah, just email admissions at stratford.edu and we'll get, and we'll perform a transfer credit analysis. You could send us your informal transcript and, uh, and we could tell you which courses would, would apply to your degree. It depends on what degree you are getting as to which courses will go, but we try to maximize the number of courses that we can give you credit for because we want to save you time and money and then uh, we'll tell you what what the what the what the credit transfer matrix would be, and then all we would need would be an official transcript at the time you would enroll. 
Uh, that was a great question. We got an email from Charlie in Scammon. Dear Tech Talk, I need to connect the desktop computer in my basement to a router that's in my sunroom at the far, far end of the house. And I tried using a USB Wi-Fi adapter, but the signal was too weak. I couldn't get anything. So I tried to use a, uh, a power line system. I, I, download, I, I bought from Amazon the Zytel 18 100 megabit per second pass-through power line adapter. It's two adapt. It's a two adapter kit. Uh, I installed it like they recommended, and I can establish an Ethernet connection right away. They, I got an Ethernet connection right away. But in about five minutes, the, it drops the connection, and then I have to unplug it, reboot it, and reestablish the connection. But it only it, it, it it's transient. It doesn't last. It, did I do something wrong? What's uh, what, what's going on here, Charlie and Scammon? Well, <clears throat> Charlie, you got a good power line networking kit. Uh, I, I don't think that's the problem. You made a good choice. Uh, the fact that you can establish a connection <clears throat> in the first place means that both of the dev devices are working. It also means that the two circuits, that the two plugs are on the same junction box, which is good because they're, if they're on a different junction box, Power line networking doesn't work. So you know they're on the same breaker box. So so that's good. So I think you've got the basic infrastructure there to work. Now, there are two reasons that it may be unreliable. If either one of those power line networking adapters is plugged into a surge protector or an extension cord, they may be unreliable. You want to plug the power line adapter directly into the wall. You do not want to go through a surge protector or any kind of uh, extension. That could be one problem that you've got, so make certain they're plugged directly to the wall. The second thing, the problem is that perhaps your electrical connections are wired incorrectly. Now, you can get a, a plug tester. Uh, I mean, they're like t 10 bucks. You can go to any of the... any. Uh, <clears throat> Any home, uh, any home hardware store and get a plug test, or you can order one uh, uh, from Amazon, and you plug it in there, and, and if it's green, you're good to go. If it's, uh, but then they have various other colors that come up in case uh, it's uh, the polarity's reversed or something's not correct. So <clears throat> I would plug in, uh, get a plug tester and test each plug, and if one of the plugs is wired incorrectly, you just pull it out and, and rewire it. I mean, you, if you don't know anything about electricity, you may want to get a, uh, an electrician to do it. If you're going to do it, all I ask is that you uh, turn off the breaker switch so the plug is not hot while you're rewiring it. I think if, if the, either one of those is the problems, you fix it. I think your, your power line uh, system will work correctly. We got an email from Mark in Richmond. Dear Tech Talk. I won a really nice Bluetooth speaker uh, in a contest, almost $100 value. Now, I'd like to hook it up to my desktop, but my desktop doesn't have a Bluetooth connector. Is there a cheap way to connect my Bluetooth speaker to my computer? Well, um, well, first of all, uh, Mark, uh, uh, your speaker probably has a jack in it. You may be able to plug the speakers directly into your computer. Uh, you may be able to plug that. Uh, you may be able to plug that speaker directly into the computer. Most of them have a jack, and then you could simply plug it into the computer jack on your computer, and you're good to go. You don't even need to use Bluetooth. But if you want to use Bluetooth, that's pretty easy to do. You can get a USB Bluetooth adapter, 
And if you go on to Amazon and just search for USB Bluetooth adapters, they just have uh, a dozen or so, a lot of them there. Pick one that's got a lot of good ratings, a lot of ratings that are high, and they range between $10 and $20. You plug that into your, uh, into your computer, and then you can hook up your speaker without any problems at all. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, southwest of D.C. You can hear us at 1077 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County, we're on 104.5 FM. If you'd like to attend Stratford University, the way to start is to go to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Charles Kuhn Kao, K-A-O, who's a pioneer in the development and use of fiber optics and telecommunications. Cal is commonly referred to as the father of fiber optics. Now, Charles Cal was born November 4th, 1933 in Shanghai, China. Now, when he was young, he studied classics at home with his brother under a tutor. His parent, he also studied English and French at the Shanghai World School. His parents wanted him to become a very refined gentleman, but he was actually more interested in technology. Now, his family moved to Hong Kong in 1948, where he completed his secondary education at St. John's College in 1952. Because you see, in, uh, in Asia, a college is actually a high school. Uh-huh. In the U.S., a, a college could be a community college, but in, in Asia, it's actually a high Or in, in Britain, it's actually a high school. He did his undergraduate studies in electrical engineering at Woolwick Polytechnic, and he got a Bachelor of Science degree in 1957. So he's kind of moving into the tech world at that point. 
Now, he was interested in, uh, in research, and he got a PhD in electrical engineering from University College in London while working at the Stan Standard Telecommunications Laboratories in Harlow, England. They call them STL for short. That's uh -huh. where they do all the telecom research there. Now, in 1963, just a couple of years before he got his PhD, he was appointed as head of the electro-optics research group at STL. His research first theorized and proposed the use of glass fibers to implement optical communication, which, by the way, that basically predicted, that paper predicted what ultimately would become a worldwide reality. He concluded, Cal concluded that the fundamental limitation for glass light attenuation is, uh, which causes losses in the fiber, is caused by impurities in the glass. Everyone else thought the reason that fiber optics lost all their signals so quickly, I mean, they had an attenuation of, you know, more than 1,000 dB per kilometer. I mean, it... Basically, almost no light would get through this, this fiber optic. They thought it was because the light was scattered off of imperfections on, on the edges of the fiber optic. But Cal said, no, it is not scattering which is causing the loss. It is actually absorption caused by impurities in the glass. So he proposed to use high-purity fused silicon for optical communication. Now, now the problem is um, he had to get a source of high purity fused silica. So he visited glass companies, went all around. He, he had trouble convincing people that these impurities were an issue, but he just kept on it visiting glass manufacturer after glass manufacturer out of glass manufacturer. He finally convinced some of them to work on high-purity high uh, silica. That's uh, silicon dioxide is the, is the official name for mm -hmm. silica. Now, his results were first presented at the IEEE in uh, London of 1966 in London, and they were further published in, in July with George uh, Hockham. Now, at the time, fiber optics, fiber optics commonly exhibit a high light loss, as high as 1,000 dB a kilometer, as I said. But he was saying if we get these things down in very pure, we can, we can drop that attenuation to less than 20 dB per kilometer. Now, he traveled to the U.S. He, he still had not the super high purity glass yet. But he did show that he could reduce the attenuation substantially in the paper. But he hadn't reached the magic number yet of below 20, 20 dB decibels per kilometer. Now, he traveled to the U.S. and tried to, tried to enter some of the other research houses in the U.S. He went to Bell Labs. You know, you'd think Bell Labs would really be interested in, uh, you know, in, in a new way to communicate. You'd think but they no. would really jump on, you know, fiber optics. But... And Bell Labs was a competitor of STL, actually, but he could not even get anybody at Bell Labs to be interested. They said, this is a waste of time. You will never get an optical fiber huh. with low enough loss to be useful for long-distance communication. But he kept on it. He visited glass manufacturers, polymer factories. 
He discussed techniques for the improvement of fiber manufacture. And he kept on it and on it and on it. Now, in 1969, Tao and W.M. Jones measured the intrinsic loss of bulk fused silica to be 4 dBs per kilometer. He finally got a sample of glass, which was highly purified, and he achieved 4 dBs per kilometer. And, of course, STL in England was working on the fiber optics right away. At this point, Bell Labs became interested. They said, oh, cow, looks like you've got something here. you got 4 dBs per kilometer. That is useful for long-distance communication. So Bell Labs started working on fiber optics seriously. Now, Cal published more than 100 papers and granted over 30 patents. In 1983, he predicted that the seas would be littered with fiber optics and that we would link the world together with fiber. Five years later, that, in fact, happened. That's why it's so cheap to call anywhere in the world, because all the continents are connected with low-loss fiber optics that basically are, sit at the bottom of the sea. Mm -hmm. He joined the Chinese University of Hong Kong in 1970 to found the Department of Electronics, he returned to the ITT Corporation in 1974. That's the parent company of STC, by the way. And he worked in the United States in Roanoke, Virginia. How about that? Not far from here. <laughs> Not far from here. He's a, kind of a local guy. In 1982, he became the first ITT executive scientist and was stationed mainly in the Advanced Technology Center in Connecticut. He was appointed corporate director of research for ITT in 1986 he became the vice chancellor of the University of Chinese University in Hong Kong in 1987 until his retirement in 1996. Uh, starting around 2004, he began suffering from Alzheimer's. Now, during his time in doing all of his research, he had a hobby that allowed him to reduce his stress and to basically meditate. He loved making traditional Chinese uh, pottery. Mm -hmm. And that traditional Chinese pottery, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic technique that he had perfected. And he would go into his little pottery lab and he would make pottery and just relax. He, he did that his entire life. In October of 2009, Cal was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for his contribution in the study of the transmission of light and optical fibers and for fiber optic communication. He single-handedly made fiber optic communication practical. Cal died September 23rd, 2018 at age 84 in Hong Kong. So there you go, everything you wanna know about Charles Cal, the father of fiber optic communication. Hope you were paying attention because knowledge you just gathered from Dr. Schertz could land you free lunch. So stand by for the pop quiz on Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, Loudoun County, 104.5 FM in southwest of D.C. on 107.7 FM HD2. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University and how you can attend by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I just love this part of the show. I know you do. Yes. Well, and this is not simply a show. This is a classroom of the airwaves. Right. And, uh... We have a pop quiz to evaluate whether the class has been listening. And, uh, and I'm thinking, really, uh, you know, to come to fine dining at one of our dining rooms when we get through the pandemic. But now I'm thinking that we've had such a delay in getting it started that we're going to just have a big tech talk blowout. Invite everybody <laughs> to come for a, uh, a big, uh, you know, Jim, Jim and I will be there and we'll have a tech talk blowout. We'll invite everybody there and just have a, uh, have a tech talk fun fest that uh, maybe the Alexandria campus or the Woodbridge campus. We'll I'll, see. I'll leave my calendar open. Okay, very good. We'll have to figure out when that can happen. So anyway, uh, uh, we talked about Charles Kuhn Cow, the father of fiber optics, and he, he, of course, helped revolutionize low-loss fiber. But his research was very stressful. What hobby did he have that would allow him to relax If you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone, give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're sanitizing your fish lights under a random dock east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're fusing silica in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else, may call us on the international line. Resuming hourly sanitation practices at 9 a.m. Monday, mask use dependent on local regulations. 877-9-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Church. I guess he's got some place to go. He jumped all over you at the end there, at the beginning. He just, he's, I mean, he's in a hurry. That's yeah. all right. Yeah. Let's talk about the trivia of the week. Yes. The first ransomware, which masqueraded as a medical survey. Now, ransomware is a type of, a type of software, and, uh, and the setup for ransomware is pretty straightforward. After the payload executes on the computer, the contents of the computer are encrypted 
or the computer is locked down until the victim is held for a ransom and the victim pays up. Now today, ransomware is incredibly sophisticated and before the victim even realizes their entire computer has been encrypted, it's done and they don't even know what's happened. And they, unless they have a decryption key, they can't get back their data unless they would have a backup. Now, ransomware dates back to 1989, and the first example of ransomware was actually created by evolutionary biologist Dr. Joseph Popp, P-O-P-P. Now, he wrote a simple Trojan that was disguised as a tool for learning about the AIDS epidemic, and it and he basically was in the form of a medical survey which would assess your risk for getting AIDS. Now, if you're wondering why a biologist, an esteemed biologist at the time, was moonlighting as a black hat hacker and running malware, Dr. Pop had, leading up to his computer hijinks, a mental breakdown <laughs> that left him behaving very erratically. Now, this is his excuse. He claimed that the motivation for creating the program was to raise money for AIDS research. But uh, I, I doubt whether it ever made that final step. That was his... Uh, so, yeah. this, so he distributed this ransomware on a mailing list that he had, uh, but it end up, ended up being uh, picked up by a company that made a disk that distributed free software. And... Uh, now, and it was widely distributed, worldwide distributed. Now, this particular ransomware didn't encrypt the disk. This was very basic. Once you took the survey, uh, uh, it, the ransomware would install, and it would wait for you to reboot your computer. After you had rebooted your computer 90 times, uh, the computer would rewrite the names of all the files on your computer. It wouldn't encrypt them, but all the names of your files would all be different. That could be a problem. So you, so in order to fix it, you could go back in and, and look at your files. You could, you, know, you could manually restore all the names, but that would be a huge job. Now, now if, if people wanted to have their naming system reversed for them, Pop demanded, I should say Dr. Pop, Dr. Pop demanded $189. Now, of course, there was no cryptocurrency then, so you make a payment to him, it's going to be fully traceable. Now, the malware was so poorly designed that none of the data was encrypted. So you could, you could actually, you know, simply rename all your files. You could undo the damage. Now, it wasn't until the 1990s that a more robust ransomware came out that actually encrypted your entire hard drive. Now, that was created by computer researchers Adam Young and Modi Young. Modi Young. They created the first, the first ransomware that used public key cryptography. Uh, now, despite the proof of concept back in the 90s, ransomware did not become common until the mid-2000s. So it, uh, it to, 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 you know, till around 2005. So there you go, everything you'd want to know about the first ransomware that uh, masqueraded as a medical aid survey. All right, we've got somebody who'd like to play the quiz. We're going to go to line one and talk to MC, who's calling us from Silver Spring. Good morning, MC. Good morning, Jim and, and Doc. Go ahead, Doc, yes. and ask the question if you yeah, will, please. Yeah, this morning we, t we talked about Charles Kuhn Cal, 
He, of course, uh, was a pioneer in the development and use of fiber optics, commonly referred to as the father of fiber optics. But when he would get very stressed out, what hobby did he have to reduce his stress level? Uh, Chinese pottery making. Yep, you got it. Correct. Very good. Thank you, MC. We will get that prize right out to you in the mail. This is Tech Talk. You're hearing us on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, Loudoun County, 104.5 FM, and southwest of D.C. on our expansive 1077 FM HD2 signal. If you want to go to Stratford University, we'd just like to know more about the program. Simply go to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. So today, uh, this week in the bunker, I started thinking about fiber optics and uh-huh. the the important impact that it's had on the world. I don't think we realize all the things that fiber optic has enabled. Uh, it's uh, it's a cons- it's very reliable. They're the predominant choice of networking backbones in businesses. They're used for high speed internet services. All of our internet speed is available because of the fiber optic backbone on the internet. Uh, Now, due to its massive throughput capabilities, fiber optic can support bandwidth intensive devices. You can actually, um, one fiber can carry uh, 25,000 telephone conversations simultaneously. Mm. A fiber bundle can carry millions simultaneously without a problem. It is an amazing technology. Moreover, you can put multiple wavelengths within the same fiber, and each wavelength is actually a totally different communication channel. So you can have up to 80 wavelengths in a typical fiber, and you can really have massive, massive throughput. It has totally changed the world, and we've gotten attenuation down to less than uh, 4 dB per kilometer. 
just to give you an idea what that means, three decibels, three dB, means that you've attenuated by a factor of two. So if you've got three dB per kilometer, you go one kilometer and you've got half the signal strength. You go to another kilometer and you've got a fourth the signal strength. So every kilometer, the signal strength is cut in half. And the fibers now are running probably a loss at three dBs per kilometer, which is good enough to have long distance communication. Now, what's so special about fibers? Well, they're secure communication. Once the data gets into the fiber, it is very difficult to tap into the fiber because if you tap into the fiber and pull out some of the light, that tap can be detected. And so you'll basically, you'll basically detect light leakage and they'll know that that fiber has been tapped. So it's a very, very excellent way to have secure communication. It, it doesn't suffer from any kind of electromagnetic compatibility problems. You know, if you have copper and there's, say, lightning, and you could get big surges due to a lightning strike. Oh, yeah. But, but fiber optics, unaffected, unaffected by lightning. And in particular, it, it's unaffected by radio interference, any kind of electromagnetic, electromagnetic interference. It's just rock solid. In terms of speed, as I was saying before, fiber optics are faster than traditional cable. A small diameter, diameter fiber can get bandwidths up to 10 gigabits per second. And um, that high speed combined with high reliability has made it the choice uh, in the world. I mean, for instance, uh, you know, it used to be that long distance calls were really expensive because they would have to set up a microwave link across the country, AT&T, or else long lines would do that, or they would actually have long lines that would go all the way to the, uh, you know, from New York to California. But once we got fiber optics installed in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the country, and we had fiber optics, you know, connecting all of the major cities, it was no more expensive to make a phone call to the next door as it would be to call across the country because getting on the fiber was extremely cheap and it was extremely fast. That's why long distance calling charges simply went away because it neutralized the cost of all calls and you can call anywhere in the world now and it doesn't cost much at all. And then you've got long distance communication, of course, point to point communication. If you have copper, you cannot get those long distances because copper bleeds signal over time. But fibers with the attenuation down less than, than two, 2 dBs per kilometer can go long, long distances. And fibers, fiber optics uh, are very reliable. They're less expensive for long distance communication than copper. And, uh, and you simply get a repeater. So if you might every... Maybe every 40 kilometers, you put in a repeater just to boost up the signal again. So fiber optics have transformed the world. We've got fast internet and cheap long-distance phone calls. Yes, we're moving right along. Oh, we're just going to move we're right along. Move. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's I, what I, I was we trying gotta to get, figure we gotta out, get to this. We've got to get to this, uh, this crypto coin thing because this is interesting. Let's talk about the future of cryptocurrency, which is being decided in Congress. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two competing amendments to the Senate's infrastructure bill. Now, 
You, you've heard them talk about this infrastructure bill. Well, they got cryptocurrency language in the infrastructure bill. It's really peculiar because the bill was supposed to be revenue neutral. So they figured out that if they somehow could tax cryptocurrency, they could pull in $28 billion over a decade. So they're looking to pull $28 billion tax revenue out of cryptocurrency. Now, the Biden administrations, they, so they're, they're basically, uh, one, one proposal uh, wants to exempt miners, hardware manufacturers, and developers uh, from any kind of tax and basically focus on centralized cryptocurrency exchanges and trading apps like, like Coinbase or Robinhood. So if you're an exchange, they would focus on those exchanges in order to get taxable revenue. They would have the exchanges report users because there's no anonymity on an exchange. And then those users who are making money on the crypto would have to pay a tax whenever they trade a crypto when it's gone up and they trade it. Now, the Biden administration has put another kind of wrinkle in it. So they have another amendment to this bill, which is really peculiar. They want to exempt proof of work cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Dogecoin. And, and they would leave the proof of stake uh, cryptocurrencies taxable. Now, let me explain what that means. Uh, proof of work, say Bitcoin, there's this very complicated calculation that you have to do in order to be able to be awarded uh, a block, uh, a reward for, you know, for basically validating a block in the blockchain and being paid a Bitcoin. Uh, and so that proof of work uses a huge amount of computer power. And if you take all the proof of work computers that are around the world, I mean, they're using as much electricity as all of Venezuela uses, for instance. So a lot of people are criticizing the proof of work methods because they are not green. They basically have a high carbon footprint. Then there's the proof of stake method, where you basically don't have somebody do this big complicated calculation. You have them put up a stake. You say, look, I'm going to put up $100,000, which might only be two Bitcoins, or $200,000, which might be four Bitcoins. And if my validation is found to be incorrect, I forfeit my stake. And so people will validate the blockchain, and typically those who are willing to put up the biggest stake their validation would, would be picked first because they would be more reliable. And so they'll simply validate the blockchain. They don't have to do the proof of work and they simply put up a stake and they're trusted. And so proof of stake doesn't require very much processing power. It's a different model, but it's been shown to be effective. So like Ethereum is moving, to, is moving away from proof of work to proof of stake. So for some reason, the Biden administration wants to exempt proof of work um, cryptos like Bitcoin and tax proof of stake Bitcoins. Hmm. That is just dumb as dirt. I mean, that's <laughs> not green. And I don't understand it. In fact, I'm thinking that these guys don't actually understand what's going on at all. Um, but they likely. are in Congress debating cryptocurrency, <laughs> proof of work versus proof of stake. I'm telling you, I don't think these Congress know what they're talking about.
uh, uh, now they're they're going to be voting on this on Saturday. They probably have staff putting this stuff together, you know, and they and they you're right. They probably have no idea what they're what they're what they're talking about. I don't I don't think they have any idea. And so what I'm thinking is somebody who's a big political contributor and a major investor in Bitcoin has made some huge political contribution and his lobbyist has written the Bitcoin clause in that for that bill. I'm thinking we've got to follow the money mm-hmm. because I don't yeah. think these congressmen could come up with this wackadoodle thing on their own. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I were going to exempt anything, I would exempt proof of stake because that's green. It doesn't use much uh, doesn't use much computing power. Mm-hmm. Even Elon Musk stopped taking Bitcoin for Tesla because he said it uses too much computing power. And uh, and he said, unless unless Bitcoin improves on that, he doesn't want to take it. So, I mean, Bitcoin itself is going to have to actually switch over to proof of stake eventually. I mean, uh, when they created Bitcoin, it was just a proof of concept that blockchain would work. I think it's time for them to move on to this proof of stake because that's no longer an experiment. It works. There are a lot of crypto. There are a lot of blockchains that use proof of stake. And I think that'll go for it as quickly as possible. But there's a lot of resistance in the Bitcoin community for doing that because there are a lot of Bitcoin miners that are making a lot of money on Bitcoin. So let's talk about Pegasus software. I I, I briefly mentioned this last week mm-hmm. and uh, never got to it. Now, Pegasus software was uh, software that was written by an Israeli company. Now, it's basically spyware. Uh, it, 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 it'll steal private data from a phone. It will send a target's messages, passwords, contacts, photos, or whatever you want uh, to a surveillance central point so people can spy on you. It can reportedly even turn on the phone's cameras or microphones to create covert re- reportings. Recent versions of it have been able to do this without even having to get the user to do anything. They simply sent a link to the phone without a notification, and Pegasus starts collecting information, and the user does not even click on the link. In some cases, Pegasus has reportedly relied on users to click phishing links and then deliver the Pegasus payload. Now, the Pegasus developers, an Israeli company called NS, the NSO Group, it says the software cannot be traced back to the, to the government using it. This is the issue. Now, the company describes its role uh, in its products is helping to governments uh, collect intelligence, to do law enforcement, to use the technology to meet the challenges of uh, encryption during terrorism and criminal investigations. The company said the, to the Washington Post that it only works with government agencies and it will cut off any agency's access to Pegasus if it finds evidence of abuse. Now, much of the issues revolved around a list of 5,000 phone numbers uh, that apparently have been entered into the Pegasus database for tracking. Now, the Pegasus project analyzed these numbers, and uh, they linked a 1,000 of them to their owners. Uh, And it was basically many of them were activists that countries were trying to track down. In fact, remember Kosogi, who was who was killed in the yeah. uh, in the Turkish embassy. Uh-huh. His phone number was on there, and the phone number of a lot of his friends were on there. So they're thinking the Saudis 
tracked him down and knew what he was up to mm. using the Pegasus software. Mm. So now people are completely complaining about this Pegasus software, saying this is doing bad things for the country. The analysis done by the Pegasus project shows that it, it's include the current presidents of France, Iraq, South Africa on the list, along with the current prime minister of Pakistan, Egypt, Morocco, and seven former prime ministers from the kingdom of Morocco. Uh, there were two women, as I said, who were very close to Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who was murdered in 2018. So people are basically thinking that this Israeli company should not be making this software available because it is just too effective. Got about a minute, Doc. We've got about a minute. Well, yep. I don't think I can get to anything uh, uh, really too complicated. Uh, let me just go back to what I was saying earlier in the show when people want to get into IT. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's really important that if you're going into IT, that you basically do projects, do something you're interested in so that you can talk about actually something that you've done. If you are able to do that, you have something to talk to a potential employer about. And there's a lot of there are a lot of projects that are available that you can look at on the internet and virtualization, open source software, web development, programming. I mean, I I taught my I taught myself IT. I I wrote the first database for Stratford Student Information System. I learned databases. I learned relational databases. I wrote the first database-driven website for Stratford. I learned PHP. So I'm basically self-taught in IT by working on projects. And employers love you to work on projects. If you join a user group, there will be people that can help you with your project. And it's also a great way to network. And also look at where the technology is going in the future. Uh, check with standards. And I think you'll be able to do quite well in technology. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the website, www.stratford.edu, and tell them that you've heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.